You're listening to a sermon by Hope Bible Church Niagara. We believe in unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration of Jesus, unceasing prayer, unafraid witness, and uncommon community. If you have yet to do so, we would love to have you join us for worship in God's Word on Sunday mornings. For more information, visit us online at hopeniagara.ca. Thanks for listening. Gord Downey was a beloved Canadian musician, singer, rock star, front man for the Tragically Hip. If you don't know who Gord Downey was, then you're probably not Canadian. October of 2017, he sadly lost his battle with glioblastoma, which is an incurable form of cancer in the brain. He was only 53 years old. About a year before his death, knowing that his illness was terminal, he did an interview in which he used a striking metaphor for death. He described death as a door. Now, it's not the first time I've heard somebody describe death as a door, but in this instance, it caught my attention, likely because it was coming from someone who was not discussing death merely as a subject, but as something that he was steadily approaching and knew it. And to me, the idea, the picture of death as a door is both fitting and frightening. It's fitting because just like a physical door is a passage from one place into another, so also death is like that too. To die is to pass from this life into the afterlife. To pass from here into there. So the idea of death as a door is fitting in my mind. But it's also, there's a sense in which I would also say for some it could be understood as frightening. Because on our own, we can't see through the door to what's on the other side. And if the statisticians have it right, then today in Canada, today, 779 people will pass through that door. And we know that one day you and I will pass through that door too, from this life into the afterlife. And on our own, without divine revelation, we're left to guess at what will be on the other side. Now, for lots of people, lots of people are just content to, to live and let live and just, just wait and see. And so just, just don't think about it. Just put it out of our minds. Don't dwell on it. Many will engage in willful avoidance, right? Just don't think about it and try not to think about it. Well, others, though, will agonize over it and worry about it and live in quiet fear of it. But here's the deal. When you read the Bible... And if you take the Bible seriously when you read it, then you make a wonderful discovery. And that discovery is this, is that the Bible tells us lots about the afterlife. Without God, death is kind of like a door that you can't see through to the other side. But when you read the Bible and you take the Bible seriously, you discover that God puts a great window in that door so you can see through and you can know what's to come. You can know what it will be like. And you can know what you ought to do between now and then to prepare. In fact, I would tell you with full conviction that the Bible tells us everything we need to know about the afterlife. Everything you need to know about what's 
on the other side of the door, the Bible tells us, God tells us in his word what's exactly, what exactly is coming. And this teaching series we've been in over these last several weeks, that's what it's been all about. We've been in this study on the afterlife, and we've been looking at some of what the Bible tells us about what is to come on the other side of the door. Now, today is their final message in this series on the afterlife. A, a few weeks back, we talked about the subject of heaven, and we, we focused especially on heaven now, like what heaven is today, right now. And we, we saw in Scripture that heaven is a place where, where God dwells, where, where Christ is, where, where believers go when they die. In fact, if you are in Jesus, if you're trusting in Jesus, we saw the wonderful truth that when your time comes, when you go through that door, you will immediately go to be with Jesus if you're trusting in him. If you're not trusting in him, you'll not be with Jesus. And we saw what the Bible says about, about what's on the other side of the door in terms of judgment to come. We had a, a study one Sunday we spent looking at the subject, the reality of hell, the realities of the afterlife. But we've seen that for the believer... It's heaven, and heaven now is a glorious place. But we also find in Scripture that in the future, God is going to do something, something amazing, something new. After the return of Jesus, after the resurrection that we talked about, after judgment to come, in the end, God is going to do something wonderful with his earth. He's going to radically renovate the earth. And what heaven is now is going to merge with this renovated, resurrected creation. And there God will dwell for us forever, in heaven, in forever heaven, in our eternal home. And this is what I want to tell you about today. I want to tell you today, for the Christian, if you're trusting in Jesus, if you would come to Jesus and trust in him, I want to tell you today about your forever home and what it will be like, some of the glories to come when you are in heaven forever. Now, I'm going to forewarn you, and I'm maybe even going to apologize right up front, because I'm going to do my best. I'm going to try really hard to give you some kind of description from Scripture about what heaven will be like. But I have a prediction, and that is when you get there, when we get there, you will all agree together that I did a really poor job of describing to you the realities, the glories that are to come. Because in some ways, we struggle and strain just to be able to talk about something that's going to be so great and so glorious with reference to what we experience now. You'll understand that when you get there, you'll be like, he, that, was, that was a lousy message. But I am going to try. And I do it by faith because... God in his word tells us some things that is worth us knowing. He tells us some things he wants us to know. Not just so we'll know what to expect, but also in knowing these things and believing these things, it encourages us now to keep going. And so that's why I want to go with you together on a little tour of heaven, our eternal home. And to do that, I want to open up the Bible. That's the place we're going to find out. We're not going to learn anything other than from Scripture. It's Revelation chapter 21 and 22, the very end of the Bible, Revelation 21 and 22. If you don't have a Bible of your own, you just right nearby, just look under the seat in front of you, you should see one nearby. 
I'd love for you to take that Bible home with you. It would be, be great. We, we got more. We can, we can replace that one. No problem. So feel free, if you're using it, feel totally free to take it with you. But um, if you're looking for a scripture passage, just go to the very end of the Bible. Very end. We're in the last two chapters of the whole Bible. Revelation 21 and 22. Again, our last sermon in the series. The series is called, What Happens When I Die? A Study of the Afterlife. And now we're, we're going on a tour of heaven here. And um, the, our tour guide is the, well, it's the Holy Spirit, but the human author of Revelation is John the Apostle. And what happened is, is that he was given by God, he was given a glimpse into the future. He was shown, uh, he was given a view into heaven to come. And he wrote down here what was revealed to him. And so that's what we're going to see as we read parts of Revelation 21 and 22. Now, not to frustrate you, but I want to look at one verse in chapter 20 just to try to set the stage. Chapter 20 and verse 11. And um, uh, I want to set the stage here because it, it helps us just to sort of get a sense of, of maybe where we've been in our series, but also where we're going here in terms of our eternal destiny. So chapter 20, verse 11, Revelation, and then we'll go on to chapter 21. But it says here, John says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Now the him who's seated on it is the Lord. And this great right throne, this is looking forward to Judgment Day. Remember, we had a whole, a whole talk one day on judgment to come. And the Bible's really clear that everybody will stand before the Lord Jesus. Everybody. Now, there's lots of theologians and students of the Bible will spend time, and understandably so, talking about the timing and the order of these things. And I'm not saying those things aren't important. Those, that's just not where I'm going in this series. But I want you to understand that the Bible is really clear that everybody's going to stand before Jesus. Everybody's got a, an appointment with Jesus on Judgment Day. For the believer, that experience is going to be radically different from the unbeliever. For the believer, it'll be a judgment of rewards. Remember, the Bible says there's no condemnation for those who are in Jesus. Jesus already took the punishment for our sins. So when we stand before him, it will not be to be punished again because Jesus has already satisfied the wrath of God about our sin. But instead, it will be a judgment of rewards. And it's going to be a wonderful experience. It's nothing for the believer to fear. Instead, actually, by faith, to anticipate. For the unbeliever, though, it'll be a judgment for sin, having rejected the Son of God. And they will face the wrath of God. And we, we've done some teaching on that in this series. That's what's to come. That's what's going on here in verse 11. Now, I want you to notice something about what happens to creation. The middle of verse 11, from his presence, so the Lord seated on the throne, from his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. So this is, this is creation as we know it. This world as we know it and all the cosmos what happens is, is on this day, the Lord has returned, the resurrection happens, it's judgment day, and at this time here, we read about earth and sky fleeing away. If you flee away from something, like you're running from it, right? If we're being chased by a dog, right? I know some people say you're supposed to stay on your ground. I'm not doing that. I'm going to run from it. It's in my instincts, and if I'm a little bit faster than you, then I'm going to be okay, so we run, you run from it. And it says here that no place was found for them. So the, the, they're no more. They've, they've passed away. 
the world, the earth as we know it, will no longer be as we know it. It will have passed away. So, well, well then what happens? What happens to heaven and earth, to this cosmos and this creation? What happens with then? Well, go to 21 and verse 1. Then I saw, notice, a new heaven and new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. You see, the creation, the cosmos, this world, the world as we know it is no longer as we know it. Now God is doing something new, described as a new heaven and a new earth. I take that to mean a new cosmos and a new earth. That word new there, by the way, doesn't emphasize the idea of newness in terms of chronology, but newness in terms of quality. I'll illustrate what I mean. If I were to speak to you about a new iPhone, it could mean more than one thing. Like it could be a like new to me iPhone, like somebody's used phone that is now new to me, or one of the older, you know, not as fancy versions that I can maybe afford, like that kind of a new phone. But it could also mean a new phone, like, you know, one of these new phones are coming out with, like with multiple cameras and it'll like massage your face and do your nails for you. Like one of those new phones, these, an, an upgraded, an upgraded new model. That's the idea here, that word new, a new model, upgraded, renovated, you could say resurrected, just like you and I will be resurrected from the grave and be given new bodies fit for eternity. This creation will be made new. The world would be made new. So, so the old world, the world as we know it, is no longer as we know it, but now there is a new heaven, a new earth. For the first earth had passed, for the first heaven and first earth had passed away. And then notice he says, and the sea was no more. I'll come back to that in a minute. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. So we've got heaven. We've got our eternal home here. Notice what will happen to us. Verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. See, all that stuff belongs in the world as we know it. But the world to come, our eternal home, there ain't going to be no cemeteries. There's not going to be Kleenexes or facial tissues in the world to come. Because there will be no more crying. Think of it, no first aid kits. And he who was seated on the throne, verse 5, said, Behold, I am making all things new. Again, there's our word again, new. New in quality, better. Also, he said, write this down. Aren't you glad that he said that? Otherwise, we wouldn't have this. Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Down to verse 10. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain 
and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. So here he is. He's getting a picture of heaven to come. Talk about a tour. I mean, some of you have been on some tours, right? Some of you have been maybe over to Europe and and maybe you've been to the Middle East and some of you have maybe been, you know, uh, uh, touring through Canada or the ruins in Old City, Quebec. You've had some tours or or a boat tour or something like that. Well, any of those tours that you've had is nothing compared to this tour. Like, this is a tour of heaven to come. Like, talk about heaven visitation. Here it is, right here for real. Look at verse 11. Here he describes it, having the glory of God. How awesome is that? It's radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. Verse 12, it had a great high wall with 12 gates, and the gates, 12 angels. And on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. And on the east, three gates. And on the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Go down to verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city was, and the city has no need of sun or moon to shine in it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light, the nations will walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. But they will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. Verse 27, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Well, how do you get your name in the Lamb's Book of Life? By trusting in Jesus. When you trust in Jesus, your name is in that book. You say, how can I know for sure my name's in that book? Trust Jesus. Turn to him. Chapter 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as a crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the, notice, the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. What will heaven be like? What can we expect? I want to share with you five eternal joys that every Christian will experience in heaven. Five eternal joys. In fact, I'm going to give you five words to guide us through. Here's where we're going. Security, harmony, Purity, activity, and glory. Security, harmony, purity, activity, and glory. Don't worry if you didn't go that down. We're, we're, we're going to keep circling back. Let's start with security. In heaven, forever, in your eternal home, dear Christian, you and I, we will enjoy eternal security and peace. Eternal security and peace. Back in 21 and verse 1, 
I said we'd come back to this. Now we're back. See the last line in that verse where it says, and the sea was no more? Some of you, maybe if you haven't studied this before, you read that and you're kind of a little deflated because you like the sea. I like the sea too. When I think of the sea, I think of myself in my Speedo shorts, Speedo shorts, okay, down to my knees, and uh, out on the beach with my, uh, with my umbrella and my blanket and my Diet Coke and my Doritos, and there, and the whooshing of the waves and maybe a book and out for a swim. That's what I think of when I think of the sea. You probably do too. But when you read Revelation, that's not how Revelation describes the sea. Not as a place as you like, that you like to holiday. Rather, the sea in Revelation is a picture of chaos and destruction. The sea is used metaphorically in Revelation to speak of death and sorrow and evil. Like, like for example... It's from the sea in Revelation 13 where a beast is described who comes forward, who does Satan's bidding. It's associated, the sea is associated with unbelievers who rebel against God. It's associated with idolatry, greed, godlessness in Revelation 18. In Revelation 20, the sea is called the place of the dead. Even the sea in the whole context of Revelation itself is, is a, a picture of separation. I say that because... John wrote Revelation while he was in slave labor on the island of Patmos. And the, the whole context of the book of Revelation, the sea is a literal, physical separation of John from his loved ones, family, friends, churches. And so you see, you and I, we think of the sea as a nice place to visit, but in Revelation, it's a symbol of chaos, destruction, evil, death, and sorrow. So what does the Lord mean when he says, the end of verse 1, that the sea will be no more? He doesn't mean that we won't enjoy times at the beach in heaven. What he means is that in heaven forever, there will be security and peace. And any threat to security, any threat to our eternal peace will be banished from there and won't touch us there. Chapter 21 and verse 25 talks about gates that are never shut. You see that in verse 25? It's the holy city. Its gates will never be shut by day. Now, in antiquity, the reason you might shut the gates by day is if there's a threat coming towards you. Otherwise, the gates would be open for, for, for people to come and go, to do business, to do their work. You close the gates when there's danger at hand, and then you close the gates at night. So to keep people from sneaking into the city. Notice how heaven's described. The gates will never be shut by day. Why? Because there's no threat coming. And notice, and there'll be no night there. So what's the picture? It's an incredibly safe place. Secure. Peaceful. You know, some of you maybe grew up in a place, or maybe right now live in a place where you don't ever lock your doors. Okay? I think you're a little crazy because a lot of people like to take your stuff. But anyway, I'm just saying, I lock my doors. I remember for a season in our lives, we lived in a community where it was not at all uncommon for people just to leave their keys right in their vehicle all the time. Because nobody just, nobody took stuff. Well, listen, heaven is, it's going to be like that. <laughs> Only you won't need keys, right? It's secure. It's peaceful. Loved ones, there will be a day when everything will be set right. The world that you wish you had, you'll have. There will be no more injustice. There will be no child murderers in medium security prisons. 
They will be in the lake of fire. There will be true justice. There will be a, it will be a place where the world will be as we instinctively know it should be. There will be no wars there. All violence will end. There will be no bullying, abusing, molesting, persecuting, oppressing, manipulating, pilfering, none of it. It will be a secure place. Now, I get really practical. Think about this. This is a practical application that I look forward to. In heaven, you'll never, ever have to memorize a password. Never. You'll have no need of it. No passcodes. I mentioned it before. No keys. You'll never lock your bike in heaven. No, no one's going to take it. It's, it's all shared. It's all, it's all it's our Father's. It's going to be a place of incredible security. And how about internal security and peace? We'll enjoy that. That's coming. Security. Second, harmony. We will enjoy perfect harmony with one another. Perfect harmony. Look at 22, verse 2. 22, verse 2, it talks about near the end of that verse about the healing of the nations. Pictures a tree that has leaves that are for the healing of the nations. See that phrase at the end of verse 2? No longer, verse 3, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. So whatever strife and division and separations there are and animosity and violence and suspicions and attacking and counterattacking, it'll be no more. But instead, there'll be worship of the Lord. In verse 4, it says, they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads, all of us. What, what a unity. What a picture of perfect harmony. Every nation, tribe, and tongue, and people, heaven will be populated by people from, from every people group, and our experience together will be of genuine love and perfect harmony. Wounds will be healed, divisions resolved, and we will live for Jesus and serve him as one, truly. So there'll be no more disputes, no more betrayals, no more disappointments, no more broken promises. We will love and we'll be loved. No longer will we be driven by self-interest or selfish motives. There will be not one single ounce of envy. You'll envy nothing because, because it's all ours. Jesus says to his people, you will inherit the earth. After that, what else do you need? What else would you crave? Gone will be the insecurities that keep us closed off and guarded. You got some insecurities? I got a few. I got a few. Gone will be all of our propensities to exploit one another's fears and weaknesses. Gone will be suspicions and awkwardness. Where, where's my beloved introverts in the room? Where are we here? Let's, let's be together here for a moment. Hands, introverts, right? See, they don't want to raise their hands. <laughs> there's some of you, introverts. Yeah, 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 yeah. Listen, we get each other. We get each other. Now, a lot of people don't think I'm an introvert because I behave extrovertedly, but I get paid to do that. So kind of, no, I have to work at it. I have to, but I don't, I don't fuel up around people. I fuel up on my own. And then I spend the energy with people. And I do love people. Introverts love people, but there is this thing we've got. 
Extroverts, you got a thing too, let me tell you. Okay, y'all are weird, weird people. We could do a talk someday on personal space and that sort of thing, but anyway. I just think about lots of my own anxieties socially, and I think, you know what, in heaven, I don't know. I'd make some strides. I think I'm growing and making some strides. But here's the thing. not going to have any of them in heaven. No awkwardness. No suspicions. I might even be an extrovert. But you won't even find that annoying. Not that I find extroverts annoying. You know what I mean. Gone will be our felt need for the affirmation of others. Because you will be basking in the realization of full affirmation from God. Which, by the way, you have now in Jesus by the Spirit. But in that day, all those propensities for fear and guardedness will be gone. Gone will be the insanity of racism. There will in heaven forever be no haves and have-nots, upper class, middle class, lower class, that will be all meaningless. When we go through seasons of unity in our families, in our church, we often feel like high-fiving each other, like we've accomplished something. In our forever home, if you ever said something like, isn't it amazing how we all get along? People will look at you like, what? There's nothing else. It would be like in this world saying, have you ever noticed that water is wet? It would just be the most inane comment in heaven to say, isn't it amazing how we all get along? Of course we get along. How can we not get along? We're united in Jesus. We're in our forever home with him. And you see how it's so important for us as believers to strive for this? To show forth the glory, not of our own tolerance of one another, but the glory of Jesus who gives us grace to actually tolerate and more than that, to love each other. It is a glimpse of heaven, but man, we're going to get it right in heaven. We're going to get it right. We'll rejoice together as people who love one another with an untainted love, harmony, security, perfect harmony, third, purity. We will enjoy, think about this, we will enjoy absolute purity around us and within us. Absolute purity. Have a look at verse, uh, verse 27. Nothing unclean, talking about our forever home, nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false. Now, just to pause here for a minute, I've done things that are detestable and false. You have too. So how do we know we're getting in here? Well, because of Jesus washing us clean. That's the next line, but only those who are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. None of those people are perfect. They are perfected by the shed blood of Jesus. But the reality is, is that in heaven here, we find ourselves in a place that verse 27 reminds us is there is no impurity there. There's no sin there. And we won't sin there. It's amazing. Future heaven will be a place where there is no sin. Present heaven is a place where there's no sin. But we're in our eternal home. We won't sin and we will not be able to sin. Think about that. Think about, imagine, just try to imagine going a day, no, going an hour, no, five minutes without being tempted at all. None. Lust, greed, evil thoughts, anything, without being tempted at all. That's what it's going to be like forever. We'll like you a lot better in heaven. You'll like me a lot better. 
because we'll enjoy absolute purity around us and within us. When we're in heaven, we'll have no sinful impulse and we'll have no enemy to tempt us because he'll be getting his in the lake of fire. And the world will be perfectly aligned with God's will and willfully, joyfully so. Just imagine the unadulterated joy we'll experience when we are free from sinning. We'll look on great beauty and feel no impulse to lust. We'll be surrounded by great wealth and have no urge to take. We'll never again lie or deceive because after all, any reason we would have to lie or to deceive is gone. There'll be no sinful drive to gain power or to get an advantage over one another or to protect our image. We'll feel, feel no need to hide the truth from others. But rather, we will live with real openness because we'll have no impulses to feel like we need to do anything different. We will enjoy absolute purity around us and within us. What John means when he talks about John, in John, 1 John 3, verses 2 and 3, he says, when Jesus appears, we'll be like him. We'll be like him, that is, in his purity, because we shall see him as he is. There is a transformation coming. God is working in you right now to make you more and more like this. But there's a transformation coming. There's a day coming when the job, this transformation in purity will be complete and it will be an awesome thing, free from the very presence of sin. It's amazing. Security, harmony, purity, activity. Now, here's a neat one. I think this is neat. We will enjoy God-given activity in service and worship of him. We will enjoy God-given activity in service and worship of him. Look at 22 and verse 5. There's a phrase I want you to pay attention to here. I'm going to read the verse, but I'll emphasize the phrase. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord will be their light. And here it is. And they, talking about us, who are in heaven, the residents of heaven, and they will reign forever and ever. Reign. R-E-I-G-N. Reign. This is a really interesting, interesting verse. Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 2 and 12, if we endure, we will also reign with him. Like if we press on for Jesus and trust him, we'll also reign with him one day. It's a wonderful promise that we will reign with Jesus. Now, the reason I think this is uh, so instructive for us and gives us insight into life in heaven is because I think that this phrase here about reigning forever and ever and reigning with the Lord actually has linkage that goes all the way back to the very beginning of the Bible. When God made people to live in this created earth that we're living in now, the Bible says that he gave Adam and Eve, he gave them dominion over creation. The word in Genesis is dominion. Dominion means that they, it's God's world he created it. He made people alone to bear his image. And our role as image bearers is to be really agents of God in this world, having dominion over creation. In other words, it's another way of saying reigning. We, we live as people here having dominion or reigning over this creation, serving and, and doing all of our activities here in this world as he is assigned for us to do, being his image bearers. In eternity in heaven, that's what we're going to do as well, only there without sin. 
and there without limitation of time, and, and there without the limitations of all the frustrations of fatigue and fogginess and the, the, the struggles we have in a fallen world, in the end, to reign is to have dominion. And so what I understand from this in verse 5 when it says, and they will reign with him forever and ever, doesn't mean we're going to sit forever on a throne with a scepter in our hands. No, no, you're, we're going to live. Like we're going to live this, this, this life, this forever life. We're, we're, going to, we're going to create things. We're going to build things. It talks about a city, describing a city, uh, the eternal home as a, as a city. What's a city? It's a place where stuff happens. Commerce happens. Buildings are built. Things are created. There's, art is made. For the artists in the room, think of what you'll do when you're in heaven. And you're in this perfected body and you have no limitation of time and there you are basking in the glory of God. You'll paint real good, some of you. For the builders in the room, think of what you could build. In fact, you might even discover builders and mechanics that you're actually more of an artist than you realize. And artists, you might find an aptitude for building because you're going to have, we're going to be creating things. We're going to learn things. Going to learn things. Only God knows everything. We will spend all eternity learning and growing firstly and foremostly in our knowledge of the glory and the greatness and the goodness of God. And as we do so, we'll also learn in, and grow in our understanding of all the kinds of truths and we'll have forever to do it. Some of you are going to get multiple PhDs in heaven. You just watch. You just watch. Some of you, you're going to find that I can accomplish a whole lot more academic than you ever imagined because you're going to have forever to work on it. It's amazing. Now, some of you are just like, that sounds terrible to me. Well, they'll have something else for you. The point is, is that far too often Christians have in their minds a boring, deflated view of heaven, like we're somehow these disembodied spirits floating on crowds eating cream cheese. There'll be cream cheese in heaven, I'm sure, but you're not going to be floating on clouds. You're physical beings living life in this new creation, this new earth, only life the way it's supposed to, always supposed to be. We're going to have plays and stories and movies like Hollywood never saw. Make music. Oh, the music in heaven. Can you imagine? And the sound systems we'll have. Incredible. One pastor put it this way. There will be no bodily lust to defile your heart. No physical fatigue to cloud your mind. No wicked impulses against which you must fight. No dullness of spirit to hold you back. No lethargy of soul to slow you down. No weakness of will to keep you in bondage. No lack of energy to love someone else other than yourself. No absence of passion to pursue what is holy. Think about what life will be like when we're living in our eternal home. So don't worry, heaven will not be boring. It'll be a place of amazing activity, only so much better than we could ever imagine. Security, harmony, purity, activity, finally, glory. We will enjoy the glory of the presence of God with us forever. Verse 3 of 21. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And notice how emphatic this is. And God himself will be with them as their God. In eternity in heaven, we will enjoy the glory of the presence of God with us forever. Word of caution. If you like the sounds of the first four, 
security, harmony, to some extent, purity, and activity. If you like the sounds of those first four, but could take or leave this fifth one, you're probably not a Christian. See, the reality is, at the heart of eternal life, Jesus says, it's knowing God. And what makes beauty beautiful is God himself who created that beauty and wired us with capacities to perceive that beauty and to exalt in him the beautifier. The only reason that games are fun is because God has made it that way and given us a desire to have fun and to acknowledge that was fun. The only reason that we enjoy the arts and creating things and, and, and developing things, the only reason that we find pleasure in joy in this life is because we have a God who created us with capacities for that. You see, it's all about him. Of course, everybody wants security and harmony and activity and to some extent, purity, to some extent. But the reality is, is that if you could have all of that, but, but not God, there's something wrong in your heart. Because he is God who makes all those things what they are. He's the one who makes them worth what they are. He's the one that makes them possible. And that's why Jesus died for you, is to bring you to God. You see, Jesus didn't die just so you could go to heaven. Jesus died to bring you to God. And it's in God's presence where you will, it's there in heaven where you will enjoy God's presence forever. That's what Peter meant when he said, Christ also suffered the just for the unjust that he might bring us to God. See, he's the point. He's the reason. The single most important reality of heaven is that God will be there and we will see the Lord Jesus Christ himself face to face. And we're told here emphatically that he will dwell with us. And actually, you know what, loved one? That's been God's plan and his desire all along. When you go back and read the story of the beginning, you see there the first people that God ever made, God would come and visit them because he created them for them to know him and to enjoy him. And then you read further on into the story of Israel, and there's this nation, and God told them to build a tabernacle. And then later, they built a temple. Why? Because in that place, in those structures, was a place called the Most Holy Place, which was the place that represented and was there the manifestation of the very presence of God. Why did God have them build a tabernacle and a temple? Because he desires to be with his people. And then in the New Testament, Jesus himself, God himself, comes into this world. And John the Apostle says, and he dwelt among us. You see, it's his heart, it's his desire. In fact, it means he tabernacled among us. He came and dwelt among us. And then in this new covenant, we read about the Spirit of God indwelling us. And Paul says in Ephesians 1 that the Spirit is God's guarantee or a down payment. A down payment, that speaks of something future to come. Yeah, you know what's future to come? Where not only the Spirit will dwell in us, but we will dwell with God, you see? God's desire from Genesis through Revelation, his desire for you, is that he would dwell with you and you would dwell with him. And that's exactly what heaven will be all about. Where we will be with him. And we will enjoy, yes, a lot of things. But we will enjoy especially the presence, the glory of the presence 
of God. It's the single most important reality of heaven. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 1611. See, he is the one who satisfies the heart with the one thing that nothing else can afford us. Full and forever joy found in him. Who's in? Who's interested? Who'd like to be there? I want to tell you emphatically, you can. And you will. If you trust in Jesus. If you are not in Jesus, and if you will not turn to him, I tell you in all seriousness, I just got to tell you the truth. As I understand scripture, if you are not in Jesus, then this message today is in some ways as close as you'll get there with your face on the window, looking in to try to see what's there. But if you are in Jesus, you're being given today a preview of what's to come. And remember I said, when you get there, you'll find this was not a very good sermon. But if you are in Jesus, this is your future. This is, I can't be more emphatic. This is where you're going to be with your God forever. He will dwell with you. You will dwell with him. And all the glories and the joys and the blessings that come from an almighty, merciful, loving, great God will be realized in heaven forever. So, dear Christian, I just close by saying to you, keep going. Keep trusting Jesus. Like, when you read Revelation, I know there's a lot of things in here that makes us scratch our heads. I get it. But if you read Revelation, you come away with some things that are pretty clear. And one of them is super clear. The Lord wants us to keep going. Tells us all these things and gives us a glimpse of the future to encourage us. Like when you're down and distressed and, and feeling low, getting a look at the finish line here is designed by the Spirit of God to get some strength in our legs, get, get my shoulders back and get, get a little Gatorade going and let's, let's keep going here. Let's keep moving because we're, we're getting there. We're one day close to the finish line. When you're discouraged and you've had a bad week, yeah, that's what Earth 1.0 is like. There's a lot of bad weeks, but Earth 2.0 is coming. The new heaven and new earth and you're going to have nothing but great weeks then. So let's just press on. Let's press on. You're not alone. You got your church family here. You got the Spirit of God dwelling in you. You got the Word of God. You got the promises of God. So we can do this. We can do this with His help. We'll keep going. But this is what this is for to say, hey, come on, come on. Don't stop. Keep going. Come on. We're almost there. That's what this is for. So keep going. Don't give up on Jesus. Where are you going to go? Where are you going to go? Seriously. Keep, keep trust. I know it's hard. I know. You got, you got to trust Him. You'll make it because he's got you. Finally, I want to give an invitation for you to come. Yes, to heaven, but especially to God. Revelation 22, verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates washed robes. That's the forgiveness of sins. Jesus will wash the robes of your heart clean of sin when you trust in him. And that's the way into all of this blessing of knowing God. And then verse 17, the spirit, take that to mean the Holy Spirit and the bride, the church, 
the spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price, come. I'm going to close here. just want to read you something. I'm going to close. And just so team knows, we're actually going to forego the last song here. It's baptisms and everything. We got Hope Kids workers down there that are just clinging on to life. No, no, they're having a great time down there. And uh, so maybe, well, they'll see when they come in. We're just going to close. They'll be, they're, they're just getting ready there. But anyway, I just want to read this to you and then I'm done. It's by a man named Pastor Peter McKnight. And um, the previous church I pastored in the GTA, Pastor McKnight was actually the first pastor of this church and he pastored them from 1999 until 2003. In August of 2002, he was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And um, within a few short months, he passed through the door into heaven. Just a few short weeks before he died, he wrote this little pamphlet. I'm not going to read the whole of it to you. I just want to read a few things from it. It's called Reflections on a Life Cut Short, Words of Wisdom from a Dying Pastor. I want to leave you with this. When a man is told he has terminal cancer, as I was just a few months ago, it also tends to focus his thoughts. I had never been seriously sick in my entire life, and now I found myself facing my own imminent death. I felt as though I were on question three of a 10-part exam, hearing the examiner announce that there were just five minutes left. So much to do, so much left undone. Although we give lip service to our own mortality, we really think and live as though we have unlimited time ahead of us. We place a lot of expectations upon life. We count on seeing our children grow up, our grandchildren arrive, our retirement years enjoyable. Since learning of my fateful diagnosis, though, I have found that my perspective has changed. Things that were once important to me, financial security, a sense of control over life, reputation, recognition, have all faded into the background. Things I often took for granted, the love of family and friends, my relationship with God, the value of each moment, these come to assume far greater importance in view of my uncertain future. As I have adjusted to living with cancer, I've learned three things. Number one, life is short. As I write this, I am 50 years old. That's considered fairly young by Western standards, but whether we reach the age of 50 or 90, these few years we live on earth are pitifully short. Two, heaven is home. I like good things. I'm married to a beautiful wife. I have five wonderful sons and the cutest grandson in the whole world. I enjoy nature, art, music, astronomy. Until I started chemotherapy, I also enjoyed food. I like to learn about new things. I love order, precision. It occurred to me one day, not long after learning I had cancer, that if God made this world so breathtakingly beautiful, if he packed into this planet that is our temporal home, so much to appreciate and enjoy, if he endowed us with the ability to truly enjoy it, how much more beautiful must our eternal home be and how much greater our enjoyment of it? Heaven will be the most fascinating, irresistibly adventurous, achingly beautiful place. Heaven is home. Third, live for God. If life is short and heaven is home, then why am I here? It is a valid question. A question to which many people haven't discovered a satisfying answer. I have learned that if I am 
here simply to live. I have learned that I am here simply to live for God. In his wisdom, he has placed me on this planet so I may bring glory to him and point other people to him. God is my ultimate frame of reference. If I'm not here to live for my own benefit or for any other purpose than God's purpose for me, sorry, I am not here for any other purpose than God's purpose for me. And the wonderful thing about living for God's purpose is that he gives me what I need. God placed me here to live for him. That's my purpose, my mission. If I abandon that mission by living for myself, by living as though I was the only one that matters, my life will fall short of that for which God has designed me. Life is short. Heaven is home. And I have learned that what I do and how I live during these short days on earth matters enormously in heaven. It matters because God says it does. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive what is due him for all the things done well in the body, whether good or bad. And he is going to ask us, what did you do while you were living in that tent? Were you living for, what were you living for? Who were you living for? Were you living for me? Or were you living for yourself? Were you living in anticipation of coming to heaven? Or were you too busy trying to turn your little life into a personal heaven on earth? How did you treat other people? Did you love them and care for them? Or did you use them? Did you care about my priorities or did you only care about your priorities? Remember, words of a dying pastor, life is short, heaven is home, live for God. He closes with these words, you can have your sins forgiven and know that God has a place reserved in heaven for you by sincerely praying a simple prayer to God, saying something like this. And if this is your prayer, then I'd ask you to pray along with it. Can you just let Alec know what's happening, please? Leanne, thanks. I just want you to pray this along with me. If this is your prayer, this is serious stuff. Eternity's in the balance here. We're not playing games. We don't know. We don't know how long we have. I'm not trying to scare you. I'm just telling the truth. If you are in this place right now, then I invite you to pray this prayer with me. This is Peter's prayer, and we'll just pray it here together. Dear God, I acknowledge and confess to you that I am a sinner, but I now repent of my sins. I understand that Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for my sins. And I now truly believe in him and receive him as my Savior and Lord. And if today you prayed that prayer and you mean it as best you know how, then I want to encourage you with the gospel truth that Christ indeed has died for your sins. He's risen from the dead and he gives you life. And I would ask you to take a bold step of even telling somebody else, you know what, I prayed that prayer. That dying pastor, I prayed that prayer. And I meant it. So Father in heaven, as we go forward from this place, we pray that you would give us grace to live with anticipation of your promises fulfilled to come. And Lord, there would be an air about us of yes, humility, of yes, compassion, but also of great hope because you've given us great hope. And Lord, I pray that even this week, in and through your people, you would do great things and give glory to Jesus and that you would add significantly in these days to the population of heaven by the proclamation of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen, amen.